In Sonoma County, we live in an increasingly diverse religious culture. Years ago, most of our neighbors were Protestant or Roman Catholic Christians or Jewish believers. But today, our neighbors may be Eastern Orthodox Christians, Muslims, Hindus, or Buddhists. And of course, many claim to be spiritual but not religious, while others practice astrology, witchcraft, palmistry, shamanism, or some form of magic. One example of our religious diversity, for years I was in a little running group with five other guys. One was a Zoroastrian, another was a Muslim, two were Roman Catholic Christians, and one was Jewish. So our little running group was both ecumenical and interfaith. A question, friends, raised by today's text from John's Gospel is whether Jesus Christ is the way or simply a way, one of many ways, many paths to God and salvation. Now, let me offer two stereotypical responses to that question. The first is that non-Christian religions are bankrupt and those who practice them are doomed to hell, even those who have never been exposed to the gospel of Christ. And a second response is the opposite, an embrace of pluralism, the belief that God honors all sincere beliefs and practices from any and all sources. An illustration of that viewpoint is an old East Indian tale of the king who entertained himself by putting an elephant in the midst of a group of blind men and asked them to identify what it was. Well, one got hold of the trunk and said it was a rope. Another grabbed a leg and said it was a tree. A third grabbed an ear and said it was a fan. Their varied answers were intended not only to amuse, but to teach observers that the diverse religions of the world are but the gropings of the blind after a truth they cannot fully comprehend. The story intends to teach the relative nature of all religious truth. Now, there is a flaw in that argument. The tale implies that the teller of the story is in the position of the all-knowing king who alone is able to see clearly the truth which all religions seek. Jesus makes two enormous claims in today's text. He, he mixes his metaphors and claims to be both the gate for the sheepfold as well as the good or excellent shepherd. And Jesus was not inventing new imagery here, but he was building on teaching in the Hebrew Bible. For example, in chapter 34 of the prophet Ezekiel, God addressed the Jewish king and the ruling elite as shepherds of the people and severely criticized them because they served their own selfish interests rather than the interests of their flock, the people God entrusted into their care. God responds to their abuse of their own people by saying, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and I will feed them with justice. Using that same metaphor, God is pictured as our caring shepherd in the 23rd Psalm. Well, with that introduction, let's hear our text today. This morning we read from the Gospel according to John. 
beginning with verse, chapter 10, verse 1. Very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Amen. Now here's my thesis. Jesus' claim to be the gate to salvation rests upon his claim his more foundational claim to be the good or excellent shepherd. Now, what makes Jesus the good shepherd? First, his personal knowledge of and his competent care for his sheep, which means Jesus knows us thoroughly and wants to be known by us. The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Shepherds often name their sheep just as we would name a pet. Friends, Jesus knows your name and the shepherd notices when even a single sheep goes astray now if you know anything about sheep you you already know they are notoriously stupid and helpless animals and a shepherd has to lead them and bring them back when they go astray protect them from predators provide good pasture and water and care for them when illness strikes in countless ways Just as the good shepherd cares for his flock, so the risen Christ cares for us. If we are willing to embrace Jesus as our shepherd and leader in life, he provides us with constant companionship, ethical guidelines, forgiveness when we lose our way, 
and the promise of life everlasting. So Jesus is, first of all, the excellent shepherd because of his wonderful care for the sheep. And second, Christ Jesus is the good shepherd because he willingly sacrificed his life for us. Now, this is in stark contrast to the hired hand who abandons the sheep and runs away when a pack of wolves approaches. The sheep don't belong to the hired hand, so he won't risk his personal safety to protect them. The Mishnah, a record of rabbinic teaching during Jesus' day, clarifies the legal responsibility of a shepherd who is a hired hand and not the owner of the flock. It says if a single wolf attacked, the shepherd was required to defend the flock. But if two wolves or more attacked, it became an unavoidable accident. And the hired hand needn't risk his life to protect the flock. Friends, no shepherd ever planned to die for his sheep. If a shepherd did give his life protecting his flock, it was by accident. He planned to live, not to die for them. Now, there are two implied contrasts here between Jesus and other shepherds. While the death of the shepherd in the story Jesus tells meant disaster for the sheep, the redemptive death of the good shepherd means life abundant for his sheep. And secondly, while a thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy the sheep, Jesus the good shepherd freely gives his life to save his flock. On February 3rd, 1943, the troop ship Dorchester went down in the icy Atlantic off the tip of Greenland with heavy loss of life. There were four chaplains on board that ship. George L. Fox and Clark Poling were Protestant pastors. John Washington was a Roman Catholic priest, and Alexander Good was a Jewish rabbi. When the torpedoes struck around 1 a.m., Many of the inexperienced GIs were caught sleeping without their life jackets, although that was contrary to orders. In the confusion, some were still without a life jacket even after all the surplus stocks had been distributed. Each of the four chaplains wore a life jacket when he began working among the men to comfort the wounded, calm the shocked, distribute life jackets, and guide the men to the lifeboats. Places in the boats were declined by the chaplains. When last seen in the light of the flares just before the ship went down, not one of the four chaplains still wore a life jacket. They had been forced on unwilling soldiers taught to obey orders. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. As I mentioned earlier, it's my thesis that Jesus deserves to be acknowledged as the gate because he is the good shepherd the caring shepherd, the self-sacrificing shepherd. And so in in our text today, in addition to being the good shepherd, Jesus claims, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus is describing a sheepfold, an enclosure with high stone walls to discourage thieves and predators, with a shepherd there to guard the single entryway and protect the sheep. In fact, the shepherd often lay across the opening at night to protect his sheep, in essence, becoming the gate. 
Jesus promises those who enter through him will find life abundant and eternal. Well, what does Jesus claim to be the gate mean for us today? In John's gospel, we read that there are serious consequences for those who reject Jesus Christ. Must we then stand in judgment of all those outside the Christian family and condemn those of other faiths and those who have never heard the gospel? No, and in fact, according to Jesus himself, it would be a sin to do so. I think this sort of rendering final judgment about other people is precisely what Jesus warns against when he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. Friends, God is judge, thankfully, and we are not. God sees the human heart, and we do not. British missionary and theologian Leslie Newbegin once wrote that some Christians assume, quote, that our position as Christians entitles us to know and declare what is God's final judgment on other people. And then he comments, this is the exact opposite of the teaching of the New Testament. Here, emphasis is always on surprise. It is the sinners who will be welcomed, and those who are confident that their place was secure will find themselves outside. So Newbegin is referencing, at least in part, the four occasions in the Gospels when Jesus warns, many that are first will be last, and the last first. So although I believe no one will be saved apart from the grace of Christ, I cannot be certain how widely God will apply the grace of Christ, since we are told by the Apostle Paul that God desires all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The bottom line, friends, is that acknowledging Jesus as the gate means that we have an obligation to share the gospel of Christ with a sense of joy and urgency with our unchurched friends. God calls us all to become ambassadors of the good news of Christ's grace and love for us in Christ. So who among your friends, your family members, your co-workers is unchurched and who you might engage in a spiritual conversation this Lent? Now, what will happen to sincere practitioners of of other religious traditions? Or what about those who haven't heard the gospel of Christ? I don't know. No one knows. For better or worse, the Bible doesn't spend time answering all of our speculative questions. What we do know is that Jesus is the Christ, our caring shepherd, who loved us by giving his life and sacrifice for us, who is also the gate, the way to salvation. And one last question. Why is it that God sent Jesus as the gate, the way? Why not have many gates, many ways to God and salvation? The Scottish theologian John Bailey reflects on that question and writes, For if it had been so, that each person could find God in one's own way, 
Each would be finding God without at the same time finding his sister or brother. If the love of God were revealed to each in a different place, then we could all meet God without meeting one another in love. If the various peoples of humankind could find their ultimate enlightenment and salvation in different names, the human race would forever remain divided. Was it not then a gracious ordering of things on God's part that there should be ultimate salvation in only one name? That we can meet with God only by meeting with one another. Perhaps that's why in verse 16, after claiming to be both the good shepherd and the gate, perhaps in reference to Gentiles, Jesus said, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ as the ultimate expression of your love and care for us. We praise you that as the good shepherd, Jesus knows us by name and cares for us so deeply that he sacrificed his life for us. Give us the grace and wisdom to also embrace Christ as the gate through whom we find abundant life and salvation and share this good news with others. In his holy name. Amen.